You're listening to the Nurture Project podcast with Sophie Dale. Today on the Nurture Project podcast series, I'm really pleased to be talking to Rachel Maddox. So welcome, Rachel. Hi, glad to be here. Um, And what I would like to do to to kick the conversation off is to, before we get too much into the nitty gritty of self-care, which is the main thing we'll be talking about, I'd love to kind of rewind a little bit um, and find out a bit about the journey that's brought you to doing the kind of work that you do now. Yeah, Uh, well, I would say the majority of what I'm doing now is teaching and writing. I still work with people one-on-one, but they're mostly my students inside my coaching program. And basically, like most people, it was my own personal journey, had experiences of trauma at a younger age, sexual developmental trauma, and really didn't want to face them because they're scary and hard to look at. And so I found myself in a pretty super safe, uh, sexless marriage for about eight years. And then me and my partner split up. And at that point, I ended up experiencing more trauma, as well as like vaginal melanoma, chronic vulvodynia, like things like a lot of pain in the place I wasn't wanting to look. And so, you know, just to skip past all the big details, but, you know, the, the main gist of it was life was really saying, if you don't look at this, we are going to smack you around a whole lot. <laughs> So I ended up um, finding a really incredible somatic therapist, and I went through a training called Alchemical Alignment, which is a trauma resolution training. And actually, when I was working with that, that therapist, her name is Bridget Vixens, I was on my third session with her, and I had this experience of feeling like this like red carpet rolled out in front of me, and I was like, okay, I have a job to do, and it's to let people, especially coaches in the coaching industry, know what trauma is and how it works and why it's happening. Because there's so many sort of inefficient and ineffective ways that we're trying to heal something cognitively that is of the body. Mm. And so at that point, that's when I decided I was going to write my first book, Secret Bad Girl. I was like, I'm just going to write a sexual trauma memoir and resolution guide. And I'm going to tell the story of how I realized I was living with trauma as opposed to something was just wrong with me and I was secretly bad and messed up. And um, I started working with lots and lots of people who had trauma. So I've now worked with definitely hundreds of people who've either had developmental or sexual or complex or systemic trauma. And um a lot of those people were coaches or therapists and they would say, can you please train me? And I would say, no way. (laughs) I do not want to be a trainer. That's a lot of responsibility. Ethically, it's a huge thing to take on. Um, But I kept hearing that invitation. And so I just very slowly started doing things at smaller scales and eventually got to the place where I felt like, okay, I can do this. And my second book, the second body of work came through called Rebloom. And once that came through, it was a whole method and modality with these archetypes. And then I was like, okay, I have a system that's pretty codified here. So I feel confident that I could share that with people and it could be really effective and deep and resonant. So that's basically how I got into what I'm doing. And the books, they just sort of like called to me and they were like, write me or I will do something to you. 
<laughs> you got used to, to to listening to those messages by that point. Um, yes. So can we talk a little bit more about trauma and um, big T trauma versus small T trauma? Because I think some of the people who are listening to this might not recognize in themselves the concept of having experienced trauma, but I think they may possibly have experienced quite a lot of small T trauma. Right, 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 right. Well, I think there's a lot of things that create an inability to cope. And that's one of the ways you might define trauma as something that happened. Um, and that something could be relational. It could be systemic. So it could be rooted in cultural systems, racism, sexism, patriarchy, classism. Um, it could be developmental, something that happened before you even had the cognitive ability to notice. So, you know, I guess, yeah, a lot of times people think trauma as like war PTSD or major sexual violence or, uh, you know, some, some kind of huge accident. But again, trauma is, my, one of my definitions of trauma is an embodied violation hangover. So it's a hangover that stays in your body of something that happened in the past that you haven't quite resolved. And that something can be interpersonal. It can be relational. It can be complex, meaning that it went on for a long time. So maybe you were in a relationship with somebody who was manipulative and controlling, maybe not even narcissistic, maybe just a little bit manipulative and controlling, and you continuously shove down your need for your own experience and your own reality to matter. And you got so used to that, that now you're walking through the world thinking, am I allowed to matter? Mm. That's and I trauma. That definitely plays into something that I see a lot, which is people feeling like their voice doesn't matter. And that yeah. stops them from writing. Um, right. And that can also be a result of shame and repression. So in, in the Rebloom model, I won't go through all of it, but there are seven core traumatic imprints that each connect to an archetype and they each also have a natural blueprint of health. And the third imprint is shame and repression. And that shame and repression could have come from parental figures, people saying, you know, you're bad, something's wrong with you. Why are you so sensitive? Why are you so emotional? Why are you so weird? Right. Um, or it can come from like the church or religion, which is a big one, right? Your sexuality is a sin. You, you know, children should be seen, not heard, these kinds of things. And when we have that, it dampens that natural blueprint of health for whole self-expression. I think so. And I think also that, you know, one of the things I'm particularly noticing, especially working with women, which I mainly do, is mm -hmm. that um, that need to feel safe before you can create something is huge right. because it's very vulnerable to, to create yeah. something and put it out there into the world. Um, and so my sense from the kind of work you do is it helps people to create a kind of safe space for themselves in all kinds of contexts, not necessarily focused around writing. But, but once people have that kind of safe place to stand, it might liberate their voice as well as other aspects of their personality. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this third archetype, the expressionista, the whole self-expression, um, you know, the archetypes move in this developmental cycle and the second archetype. So, so the first one's the soul seed, which is being able to, it's connecting to your youngest developmental needs. I have needs. I can speak what they are. I can receive them. But the second one is the gatekeeper, which is the part that 
protects and provides for that youngest soul seed, the part of us that has those needs. And it says, you're, you're precious, you're worthy. I'm going to provide everything that you need. And I'm also going to protect you from unwanted criticism, unwanted violations, unwanted exploit, exploitation. And it's that gatekeeper, that protector and provider that actually makes us feel safe enough to bloom up into the heart space and start cultivating and coming out with our expression. If we fear exploitation, if we fear we're going to be taken from, if we feel we're, fear we're going to be shamed, if we fear we're going to be manipulated or controlled, as we bring our voice forward, of course, it's going to stay small and dim. And so having that sense of sovereignty online, like, no, I get to decide who sees my work and who doesn't, as opposed to nobody can see it. No, I get to decide what would help protect this you know, small growing bud and what would provide nourishment to it. And I think when we're thinking creatively, one of the things I really like to share with students and clients is it's really important to have a safe network of people where you feel like they're going to celebrate your expression, especially if you have a history of being shamed or repressed. So there's no shame in needing that celebration, that circle of celebration. In fact, it's pretty required to have that kind of post-traumatic growth around your creative expression. Mm, yes, that resonates very strongly. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about was often writers tend to be very much in their heads. I mean, like 21st yeah. century people tend to be a lot in their heads, so it's not, not exclusive to writers, but I think even more so for writers because it, it feels like it's a very cognitive process. Um, and I think kind of rooting back into the body is really important in that context. Uh, and I know you talk a lot about kind of um, attuning to what's going on in your body and body first thinking. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the reality is our higher level creative brain actually in order to function at its peak optimal state, the neocortex, the prefrontal cortex, it requires the reptilian brain and the limbic brain to be more relaxed. Um, to not be in hyper arousal or hypo collapse, to not be in fight or flight or freeze and appease. And so the question might be, what helps you put your whole being into a flow state, into a state where you're not worrying about other things? You're not thinking, oh, do I have that appointment later? Or, oh, do I have that responsibility to that other person that I haven't fulfilled? Or, oh, is this person or that person mad at me? Or, oh, what will they think? Instead, you're allowing your whole body to connect with something that puts you into a flow state. So that way, the different parts of your brain are synthesizing and the most creativity can come online. So I like to, I mean, I mean simple things like go for a walk in the morning, uh, drink a lot of water, eat some food, turn on a little bit of you know, nice, relaxing music, light a candle, and all of a sudden my entire state is different. I'm still going to have fear when I show up to the page, especially if I'm writing about something hard. But that fear is very different than a sort of frayed and distracted and in general low-resourced creative state. So I've created the conditions for my state to be more plumped up. And now... It's my plumped up physiology <laughs> reckoning with 
my fears and my insecurities and my anxiety about what I'm writing or my excitement about what I'm writing versus like a low resource physiology. With the low resource physiology, the chances of me really being able to clearly and coherently express something are much lower. Mm, I love that. I think that's so true. Um, one of the things I often work with on, uh, with clients is kind of setting up some pre-writing rituals, which pretty much fit in exactly to all the things you just said. Go for yeah. a walk, light a candle, maybe, you know, use scent in some way to relax yourself and kind of cue yourself into writing, that kind of thing. Um, could you talk a wee bit more about, um, given that, that you are a writer yourself as well as being a coach in this area, um, what you have found beyond what you've just said, what you have found most helpful um, to resource yourself for your writing? Yeah. You know, one of the things I really love to do is engage prayer. Um, so I have a prayer that's actually, it's this, um, the seventh archetype is the sacred gardener and the sacred gardener is all about co-creating with life. And so I will say the, the coherence practice prayer for the sacred gardener before I write often, which is use me, move me, make me a force or use me, move me, make me an instrument for the highest expression of love, the deepest resonating truth and the greatest good for all, myself included. And then feed me, fill me, make me a vessel for the highest expression of love, the deepest resonating truth, the greatest good for all, myself included. I'm willing, I'm listening, I'm here, I'm available. And I just, I often will even put my hands up just sort of like above my head or even just beside my, my head. And just say that over and over until I f really feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. I'm connected to the, the people who are going to receive what I'm about to create. I'm connected to the ancestors and the angels and, you know, my soul lineage. It's like on my behalf. I can feel the energetics and the, the larger fractal impact and ripple of what could be created because I've connected to that realm of things. So I find that after creating more like resource in my body, either with a walk or a little bit of, you know, yoga type movement, then just saying that prayer is one really big practice that I have. Mm, that is beautiful. I love that. Yeah. Um, could we, could we talk a bit about, I've seen you, I don't know if it was a blog post or if it was a newsletter or something, but at some point you talked about um, the practice of Shabbat. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if you could talk us through that a little bit, because I think that that giving yourself a pause and a, a space is another really important part of the creative practice. Yeah. So you know how, um, well, Shabbat, for those of you who are listening and maybe don't know, it's a weekly 24-hour ritual that Jewish people hold that during this ritual, you know, there's three things you do. There's little symbols. So it's like when the first star in the sky comes out on a Friday night, uh, the supposedly or usually the woman of the household lights the two Sabbath candles, which represent the energy of work and the energy of receptivity. And it's this meeting of those two energies. So all week long you've been working and now finally you're in this, this moment of union between all the efforts you've put in and the ability to rest and relax and receive and enjoy. 
And so that's what the Sabbath really marks is this receptive time. And then you've got wine, which helps you connect to the gods and free yourself up and loosen up a little bit. And then you have challah, which is a sweet braided bread, which represents community and togetherness. And that this isn't necessarily a ritual that you do by yourself, but it's one that you do in communion with those that you love. So I have this like joke. So I don't know if you all know this, but like 98% of Christmas songs were written by Jewish people. You know, it's like, okay, Jewish people really run a lot of the entertainment industry. And I think it's because of Shabbat. I think it's because of Shabbat because one of the things about Shabbat, especially if you're doing it with others, is so, so you have these three symbols and rituals, but then you have this big, this big meal together. And during the meal, you know, your technology is supposed to be off. You're not watching TV. You are entertaining one another. And everybody is sort of supposed to have a shtick, a shtick like a thing that you bring to the table, whether it's a joke or a song or a story or a dance, or you get out your instrument and you do a thing, or you've made something really magical that you're sharing with everybody. And it's, it's a little bit the expectation that everybody's got a shtick. And if you don't have a shtick, like you gotta make, you gotta have a shtick, you know? So, so one, if there's this Friday night kind of creative stew that people engage in. And so if you were either with your own family or by yourself, how can you let yourself engage like the gods in your creative self? Like, how can you have fun? How can you play at the creative table every Friday night? And then Saturday is reserved for, um, for learning for your own enrichment and for prayer and connection, connecting to a, your own version of a spiritual life. So again, like maybe you're reading, but it's not like for school. It's for your own deep nourishment and enrichment. What are you really curious about? What do you really want to receive? What do you really want to learn something about for you? What would fill your soul? You know, what poems are you hungry for? And so for me, and, and during this time, you put all work aside. You do not work. You receive nourishment. You receive enrichment. You receive the joy of enriching one another. But purely for the sake of pleasure, joy, play, rest, and refilling your, your vessel and refilling your soul. So I think it's made a tremendous difference. And I've only actually started doing Shabbat as like a pretty serious ritual for about three years. But... I don't know how I would survive without it now. I mean, I think it's so easy to just get into this mode of, and I really want to talk about this in terms of self-care. You'll probably ask me about that, but in terms of self-care and writing, like I think it's really easy to get into this mode that models our culture, which is very extractive, that never has seasons of rest, um, that says, I'm only as good as I can quickly produce and complete. This book, Rebloom, that's about to publish in the next month or so, it's been a three-year process. I thought I was going to be finished within six months or eight months or a year. And part of what happened is my system got more and more aligned to actual regenerative health. I got more and more committed to not forcing and pressuring myself, but also not giving up. So I, I became someone who actually trusted 
that if I give something its own time, but I stay with it, right? There's that middle ground mm-hmm. between and not forcing rope, and isn't? pushing, but also not giving up. Just consistently showing up in coherence with what I have capacity for, what I'm excited about, and continually creating the conditions for me to be able to share my creative gifts that I just said, it's going to happen. And it tortured me, right? Because for years I was like, oh my God, this was supposed to already be done. But I kept coming back to this knowing that things do have their own divine timeline And my job isn't to force the timing. It's to usher what's possible inside of that timeline. And that's such a powerful realization to come to, I think. And a very hard realization to come to because everything in our culture is screaming the absolute opposite at us. Totally. Super, super hard, but also really rewarding. I feel like so grateful because this book and this body of work would not exist as it does with as much depth and quality and really like lived coherence, like inside out alignment. If I had rushed, like part of the medicine of rebloom is being in cooperation with nature and natural rhythms. So if I hadn't done that as I was writing it, I would have stripped the nutrients from the book, which is what our culture does everywhere. We strip the nutrients from our food. We strip the nutrients from our sexualities. We strip the nutrients from so many things by trying to rush, trying to force, and never giving things the break and the timing that they need. Mm, So, so true. So if people want to get hold of a copy of the book, and I very much think from your description of it that they should, um, (laughs) what's the best way for them to do that? It's coming out, I think by the time this interview comes out, it probably will be out there if it's in the next month or so from when we're recording. Yes, let's hope so. So speaking of timelines, I decided (laughs) to throw away the idea that I had a published date. Um, And right now I'm in the process of everything's done. I'm waiting to get a print proof in my hand, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, So it could be out in a month, could be two months. I don't really know, actually. We'll just see what happens. But if you go to rebloomtogether.com, you'll be able to find the book. Perfect. Okay. okay. Well, thank you very much. And also, if people want to kind of follow you rather than the book, um, is your personal website the best place for them to do that? Yeah, rachelmaddox.com. You can find me on Instagram. I send out very sporadic newsletters when I feel like it. But I definitely write a lot on Instagram. So it's at rachelmaddox. And you can find me there. And I'd love to connect. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Nurture Project podcast. If you enjoyed this, please make sure to check out the other episodes.